All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance on our time together. Our Father, it's a great privilege we have to have your word, to own your word, to have it as our own possession. Many of us have many translations, and Father, yet in this world where the Bible is so readily available in so many places, there is such a lack of knowledge. There is lack of interest. There's lack of concern. There's focus on too many things and none upon you. Father, we pray that we might not take this lightly that we have your word, but that we might recognize that this is your very word to us. This is what you have written, what you have preserved through centuries, that you have taken uh, many different writers in order to craft what we have before us and many others who are responsible for its copying and its transmission, that we might come to understand who you are, that you have drawn us to yourself through your word and that you have called us to yourself through your word and that it is through your word that we learn of salvation and through your word that we are matured spiritually, we are set apart to your service, we are sanctified by your word, which is truth. Now, Father, we pray that as we take this time to study your word, that we might come to greater understanding of who you are as we study your triune existence and its significance for our salvation and its significance for our life in this life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 begins with a, with a eulogy, a, which is nothing more than a written praise to the three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we have seen in the previous two lessons. And so this morning we're continuing our understanding of what the Scripture teaches. As Paul structures this opening section, there's a praise for the blessings provided by the Father in verses 3 through 6. Then there's a praise for the Son and his provision of redemption and forgiveness of sins which uh, ends in verse 12, verses 7 through 12, and then for the blessing of the Holy Spirit as the one who seals us to God, securing our salvation forever and ever, because a salvation that is not dependent on anything that we do can never be lost by something that we do. That is critical for understanding eternal security. 
So last time we began by looking at Old Testament passages on the plurality of God and on the deity of the Messiah. Today we will look at the second part and perhaps get to the third part, depending on time. We'll look at the New Testament passages on the plurality of God and the deity of Jesus. And then we will go to the third section, how this was understood in the fourth century. Two great councils. Uh, 325 was the Council of Nicaea, out of which came a creed called the Nicene Creed, but it's not in quite the form it is now because it did not say anything about the deity of the Holy Spirit. That came together in 381 at the Council of Constantinople, and so what we usually recite, what is usually recited since that time as the Nicene Creed is really that which was brought into final form at the Council of Constantinople, and that is good because it helps us think more precisely about the Trinity. So last time we looked at the fact that in the Old Testament there's clear evidence that the Old Testament writers viewed God as a plurality, not only as a oneness, but also as a a, a plurality, as many. It's indicated by, as I pointed out last time, the plural ending of Elohim as it's used throughout the Old Testament, but specifically we looked at the first verse in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created. And I pointed out that there's not a subject-verb agreement in that passage, for Elohim is treated as a singular noun. Now, there are such things as as... Uh, collective nouns that, such as if I were to say something that the crowd applauds, then the term crowd refers to a multiplicity of people and it uses, but it's, it uses a collective noun so it uses a singular verb. But the, and if that was all we had here, then maybe that would be the case. But there's much more to it and the second point I covered was that there are plural pronouns throughout the Old Testament, when God speaks, he refers to himself as a plurality. As in Genesis one twenty six, God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. So this, again, indicates a plurality in the Godhead. Another way to look at this is the um, number one that is applied to God. It is the word echad, which can include a multiplicity. And, for example, at the end of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, uh, Moses comments, and for this reason a man shall leave father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. It is a unity that involves multiplicity. But the passage you will hear from Unitarian monotheists, such as Jews and Muslims, is Deuteronomy 6.4, where God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so that is stated, and if you talk are talking to a Jewish friend, then they will say this is the verse that indicates God is a unity. But 
even in the Jewish publication society translation in the Tanakh, and I, as I point out, Tanakh means it's an acronym for the Torah, the T, the Nevi'im, the N, and the K is the Ketuvim, and that's the three sections of the Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. So it's just referred to by Jews as the Tanakh, and the English translation of 1985 by the Jewish Publication Society translated it as, Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, citing several uh, historical rabbis such as uh, Rashbam and Ibn Ezra as the sources for, for such a translation. Now, that's important because... Um, that shows that they understand contextually the issue was a prohibition of idolatry surrounding this verse, and the statement is the Lord our God, is our God, the Lord alone, not other gods. He's distinct from other gods. There's also the personality in the Old Testament of the angel of Yahweh, who is spoken of as being God and also as being distinct from God. And so I just cited Genesis 16:7 and Genesis 17:3 uh, is also uh, passages in Zechariah which have the angel of the Lord talking to Yahweh. And so you see that there's a multiplicity of persons in the Godhead. So the idea that you don't have the Trinity spelled out in the Old Testament is true, but it's there. It's not something that just comes along all of a sudden in the New Testament. And we looked at uh, other passages, especially those that talk about the Messiah, indicating that the Messiah would be divine. Micah 5.2 was one example we looked at, promise, prophesying that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And he's described as the ruler in Israel, uh, he was he's obviously born, so that indicates his humanity, but he is one whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So he is eternal. Eternality is a critical attribute of God. This is going to come up in understanding the relationship with Jesus as the second person of the Trinity to God. In what sense is he God was the question that they were asking in the early church. If you, we believe in one God... Uh, we have God the Father, we have God the Son, we have God the Holy Spirit. Why isn't this tritheism? Why aren't we worshiping uh, three gods? And this has been uh, a, a bit of a difficulty for people down through the ages to try to understand this. I remember reading a uh, comment made on a, an exam one time where the student had written uh, that they didn't believe in the Trinity because God has to be someone I can understand. And the comment was made, don't you think somebody who is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent and who created everything in the universe from the uh, infinite subatomic particles all the way up to the uh, galaxies and the universe just might be somebody you couldn't comprehend. But the, that's the problem that we have with a lot of folks is they say, well, I can't understand God, therefore he must not be. There's some sort of conclusion drawn there. But he is everlasting. And for him to be, for the Messiah to be everlasting, eternal, he must be fully God because that is an attribute that only God has. It distinguishes him from from the creature. 
And then we went to Isaiah chapter 48, which is one of the most clear examples of multiplicity in the Godhead, where in Isaiah 48, 16, where you have the servant of God, who is the Messiah speaking, who is clearly divine, and he is sent by the Lord God at the last phrase of Isaiah 48, 48, 16, and his spirit. So there you have the three persons speaking. The me is the servant of God, the Messiah, and the Lord and his his spirit. So all three are, are mentioned there. So as we look at our passage where Paul, using a very Jewish formula, blessed be the God, he is using Old Testament language, and he's giving this a new twist because now he is adding the phrase, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the concept of God as Father is also seen in the Old Testament. The Old Testament identifies Yahweh as the Father, and so in, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63. And I want us to walk us through the context a little bit before we look at verse, verse 15. Now the chapter is a great chapter because it focuses on the future. It focuses, I believe, on that which occurs at the end of the tribulation period, at the end of that future seven-year period when God is going to complete his salvation plan for Israel as a nation. There are many, many Jews down through the centuries who are saved individually, but they are not but the nation has not accepted Jesus as Messiah. There will be numerous Jews that are saved through the tribulation period from the ministry of the 144,000 Jews, because it said there's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Those 144,000 that are saved and sealed at the beginning of the tribulation period will be evangelizing the world, they and those who respond to their positively to their message. And so when we come to the end of the tribulation period, uh, there is the majority of the saved Jews in Israel have fled, and they are across the Jordan River in the area now known as Jordan near the area of, of, of Petra. If you remember Matthew chapter 24, as Jesus walks the disciples through the events chronologically of the tribulation period, he says at one point, he talks about the midpoint event of the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist sets up his an idol to himself in the temple for everyone to worship. And Jesus told his disciples and those who would be alive at that time, when you see these things take place, flee to the mountains. And at that point, we see Jews that are believers in Jesus, because if they're not believers in Jesus, they wouldn't pay attention to what he said following that command, and they flee Jerusalem, and they head to the wilderness, and they head to this area that's identified in verse 1 as Edom and Basra. That's across the Jordan. That's over there by Petra. And 
the prophet begins focusing on this individual who has come. Now, this is the Messiah who comes because while the Jews are there, they cry out finally to Jesus as Messiah to come and deliver them. And so Jesus comes, and he. this is the first battle in the campaign of Armageddon, and he will defeat the armies that the Antichrist sent to destroy this remnant in Basra. And so Isaiah says, who is this who comes from Eden? See, he's now leading them up from Eden back into Judah and to Jerusalem. Who is this who comes from Eden with dyed garments from Basra? See, his garments are drenched in blood. They're dyed. This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I who speak in righteousness mightily to save. Notice that's a quote from from this one who is leading. So he speaks in righteousness mighty to save. That indicates that he is God. And so the prophet then asks him in verse 2, Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the wine press? See, that imagery is picked up in Revelation uh, of, of, the, of God walking in the wine press, crushing the grapes as it uh, is a picture of judgment and the red juice of the grape is a picture of shed blood. So all of that imagery is is there. That was picked up by Julia Ward Howe when she wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Of course, she has bad theology through there and thinks that that this end-time event is happening in the 1860s, so that's why we never sing it. It's bad theology. But um, that's the imagery here. And so uh, the one who comes, the Messiah, says, I've trodden the right winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. The blood is sprinkled upon the garment. I've stained all my robes for the day of vengeance is is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. It's time for me to bring corporate redemption to Israel is what is being spoken of here. And so as you go through this in, in these verses, it describes his, his uh, judgment that he comes, and then the prophet speaks again in verse 7 of the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of Yahweh. So you see a distinction between these two personages here. And he says, according to all the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness towards the house of Israel. And then he continues uh, speaking about uh, verse 8, that this one is their Savior. In verse 9, in all of, he talks about all of their affliction in the past. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his mercy, not pity as the King James has it. That's a had a different sense back then. In his mercy, he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them in the days of old. So that's an allusion back uh, to the Exodus event in verses uh, 11 down through uh, 15. And then we see his prayer. That's our passage. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation. So he's praying now. Uh, to the Father, to Yahweh, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our Father. So now he speaks of God as the Father of Israel. He's the Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he 
He refers here to God as Father of the nation. Now, in the New Testament, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he will say, you are of your father, the devil, and that is talking to them individually that they're unsaved. But here he's talking to God as the one who brought the nation Israel to life as the father of the nation. Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us. This is the remnant speaking. Uh, this is not all of Israel. That's why he goes on to say, and Israel does not acknowledge it. Why? Because they're apostate. And so he, as a representative of the remnant, is praying to God, and he says, O Lord, o Lord are our, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. In other words, that last line is emphasizing the eternality is part of your character, and it is speaking to God the Father as the author of the plan of salvation. Then in the next chapter, in Isaiah chapter 64... Verse 8, we see another reference to Yahweh as the father of Israel. But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter, and all we are the work of your hand. Now, just a note here, there are a lot of people, Paul picks up this analogy over in Romans uh, Romans 9, the clay and the potter. This is not talking about individuals. This is talking about God shaping the clay, which is the nation Israel. This is not talking about individual salvation, which is what you often hear uh, from Calvinists, that this is, talk, uh, this is applied to the potter imagery is applied to the, uh, to the individual. It's talking about corporate Israel, God shaping them to be who he wanted them to be. You have this same allusion or reference or identification of God as Father in Deuteronomy uh, 32, uh, verses 6 and 7. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Remember, Moses is speaking here. Is he not your Father who bought you? Again, referring to God as the Father of the nation Israel. Has he not made you and established you? Uh, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. That's a good verse. has an application to today. God set the boundaries of the nations. National borders and boundaries are part of God's divine institution for the nations. Paul picks up on that also uh, in Acts. So, uh, but the point here that we're making is that God is referred to as a father. Malachi 2.10 as well. Have we, are we not, or have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? So this is using the term father in relation to God's creation of the nation Israel. Now, to have a father, you have to have a son. You, a father that is, has no children is fatherless, so uh, childless, so he has not a father. So there's, Israel is referred to as his firstborn in Exodus 4.22 and 23, uh, verse 22, thus says, Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So God has a plan and a purpose for Israel as a whole. 
And this is, again, this idea of him being the firstborn is, again, restated by Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31.9, and this is a major theme that goes throughout Israel so that they are referred to as sons of um, of the Lord in Deuteronomy 14.1. You are the children. Here, B'nai is the term that the ch- uh, not sons, rather children, uh, Yeladim, of the Lord your God. Uh, you shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. In other words, you're going to live differently from the way the pagans do. This is not talking about the sons of, the, of God, which is what we talk about in Benaha Elohim in Genesis 6. This is the children of Yahweh as a reference to Israel because he is their, uh, he as their father. Then we have the Lord defined as the father of the Messiah in a distinct relationship, different from that that we have seen already with Israel. In Psalm 2, a messianic psalm that is quite important, Yahweh says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. So the speaker in verse 7 is the Messiah. The Lord refers to Yahweh, or God the Father, has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that should be, what it's saying is today I have declared you are begotten. So there are different times we see God declaring the begottenness of the son. Now that's a that's a word that was used in Old English. It's a word that is picked up, and it has a specific theological meaning where begotten is something that is viewed as distinct from being born. Being born is indicates a beginning, whereas the concept of begotten was developed to articulate the unique relationship of the son to the father, that it has no beginning, that is, it is an eternal uh, relationship uh, expressing this relationship between father and son. Proverbs 30, verse 4 also states this in the Old Testament, that Yahweh has a son who has ascended into heaven or descended, the writer of Proverbs asks, who has gathered the wind in his fists. These are rhetorical questions. Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Put these passages together and it indicates that you have a father and a son who are divine, fully divine. As he asked the question, what is his son's name? We're reminded of Isaiah 7.14 Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel in Hebrew means God with us. The L at the end is the, for God. The Im at the beginning is the Hebrew preposition with. And the A-N-U is the uh, first person plural pronoun ending for us, with us God, if you were to take it in its order in the name, but it means God with us. And then in Matthew one twenty one, as Gabriel announces to Mary the birth of Jesus, 
she, he, he says to Joseph, she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, from the Hebrew verb meaning to save, for he will save his people from their sins. So when we connect these dots, we see moving from the Old Testament that there's a plurality in the Godhead, there's a father and a son, that the son is announced in Isaiah 7.14 to uh, enter into human history through a unique birth, that his mother would be a virgin. He would be conceived uniquely and born through a a virgin and be given this name, God with us, indicating that he is fully God. He is true God. And so as we look at this, what we have, what we see is the Old Testament clearly understands a plurality in the Godhead and that there is one who is the planner and provider of redemption and that the second person is the one who carries out the plan of redemption. And then when we get to as I mentioned in Isaiah 48, the reference to the Spirit, that there is a third person in the Trinity. So the question that comes up is going to be, what is their relationship? How do they relate to one another? But what we have seen is all are attributed deity, so they all have the same essence as each other. Each is equally sovereign, equally omnipotent, equally omnipresent, equally omniscient. No one knows more or less than the other one. No one has more or less power than the other one. They are all equal. But yet, even in the Old Testament, we distinguish that there are roles that are different. There are different ways in which they work out the plan of the Father. And so that is called by theologians the economic trinity from the concept that economy or economia in the Greek was a word related to stewardship, carrying out the responsibilities given to them, is that this economic function indicates not only are they one in essence, but that they have distinct personalities and that the son and the Spirit are not independent of the Father, but they are uh, sub- they submit to the Father. There is an authority relationship within the Godhead. Now, that's important because there's a lot of folks who think that this idea of authority, having someone in a position of authority telling others under them to that that um, they are to do what they say that this is something that God put into place as a result of human sin, that before sin there would not have been authority. There are some people who think that. But what we see is authority is not, it, it becomes corrupted under sin, but authority is an eternal reality in the Godhead. The Father, we're told, sent the Son, and the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. And Jesus makes it very clear uh, when he goes to the cross that he is going to do the will of the Father. He is submitting to the authority of the Father so that Paul describes it very clearly in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that the Son submitted himself, he humbled himself by submitting to the Father 
and he was obedient and going to the cross. And so that becomes a pattern for what submission involves in the worst-case scenario where you are being told to do something that you don't want to do and that is unjust and unfair, and that becomes the pattern, as we've seen on Thursday nights in our study of Peter again and again, uh, Peter is is telling his listeners that you're going to go through suffering, you're going to go through some persecution, you're going through some of it already. It's unfair and it's unjust, but the pattern is Jesus. And Jesus uh, was treated unfairly and unrighteously uh, by Pilate, by the Jewish leaders, and he was convicted wrongly uh, and in violation of the law. He was arrested in violation of the law. Everything that happened was in violation of the law, and yet he did not assert his rights and say, but but I have a right. I am the creator God. I have a right uh, to do this the right way. And so he instead submitted himself by being obedient to the disgrace of the cross so that he could die on the cross for our sins. So that becomes a pattern that in the Trinity there is unity of essence and complete agreement, and they are one. But yet in their function there are distinctions, and those distinctions involve uh, different roles and submission uh, to uh, the Father. When we get into the New Testament, the New Testament makes this plurality uh, quite clear in a number of passages. The foremost one that speaks of the threefold members of the Trinity is in the Great Commission, a passage we studied uh, pretty thoroughly not too long ago when we wrapped up the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came to the disciples and he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He uses a verb there that's in the passive voice. It's been given to him. Well, who gave it to him? That indicates that there is someone who had this authority over him and now delegates this authority to him. So that indicates a plurality there, and it also demonstrates what I have said before, that there's an authority relationship within the Trinity. He goes on now on the basis of this authority to give a mission to the disciples. He says, go therefore, or uh, it probably has an imperatival sense. As I said earlier, it's a participle. Some people will translate it temporally as when you go. But since the command is make disciples, often an imperative command uh, sort of uh, influences how you take the participle preceding it. So it is. I don't think it's incorrect to translate this as a command. It is clearly commanded of the disciples, as we saw in various other passages, that they were to wait in, in Acts 1-8. They were to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then they were to take the gospel to uh, Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. But they are to go and make disciples of all the nations, all the Gentiles, by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that this idiom of in the name of has to do with the essence of God. So, uh, 
the fact that it is one phrase in the name of, in the essence of, that applies to all three members, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this passage affirms the oneness, the unity of the essence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as all having the same authority, all having the same uh, essence. And so he goes on to tell them to uh, teach and observe all that I commanded you. Notice the emphasis on his authority now to the end of the age. Another passage that mentions all three members of the Trinity is in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 13, uh, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that refers to the Father, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So here again is a depiction of that there are three, so you don't have more than three, in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if Jesus Christ has the attributes of deity and the Father has the attributes of deity and the Holy Spirit has the attributes of deity, then this shows that they all have the same deity, the same essence, and this uh, is not, therefore, polytheism. They are not uh, distinct in terms of their essence. They are distinct only in their in their person. Now, as we look at the New Testament, one of the things that we should understand as part of the background of this is that when Jesus is talking about the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and himself is God, Jesus also makes it clear in other passages that he is a monotheist, as the Jews were that he was talking to. Jesus was a monotheist. He believed in one God. He does not believe in many gods. He is not a tritheist or a polytheist. Also, all of those who wrote in the, in the New Testament, all of his disciples were also monotheist. And so we can't come and say, well, all of a sudden they shift to being polytheists. They're never really accused of that. They all are believers in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 96.5, for all the gods of the people, that's talking about the nations, are idols. Notice the contrast here. Same thing like we have in Deuteronomy 6.4. There is this contrast between the idols and the polytheism of the nations and the unique God of Israel, that he is God alone. But the Lord made the heavens. That's monotheism. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Here's another passage that talks about this distinction between two different members of the Trinity. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh Sabaoth, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So you have two people speaking, and they say, I am the first and the last, and besides me, there is no God. So you clearly have a plurality there as one, but also the assertion of one God. Isaiah 44, 7, and who can proclaim as I do, then let him declare it and set it in order for me, 
since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them uh, show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is one God. The Old Testament is very clear. There is no other rock. I know not one. And then in Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. Besides me, I will gird gird you, though you have not known me. So all of these are passages that affirm an Old Testament concept of a monotheism. All of Jesus' disciples were were believers in the Old Testament. They were not polytheists. And Jesus even makes this statement in Matthew 19, 17. He says uh, to the um, uh, questioner who comes to him and says, what's the greatest of the... uh, of the law, and he and Jesus responds, says, "Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, and if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments." So he says, "There's only one who is good." He's affirming monotheism there as well, and also in uh, John five eighteen, the Jews sought to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God so the Jews held to monotheism so what we see is that Jesus is a monotheist the Jews were a monotheist the apostles were monotheists in fact when Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra the crowds attempted to uh, build altars to them and they were just uh, stunned and and aghast at this because uh, they told them that they were not gods. They were not going to be worshipped of God because they were strict monotheists. And, in fact, even the angels are monotheists because when John the Apostle was going to um, worship uh, the, the, uh, John and Peter and they wanted to build, build an altar, then they were uh, told not to. So there's no indication that any angel allowed worship other than the angel of the Lord. So Jesus claims this specifically in John 8:58 after a confrontation with the Pharisees and he said most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was I am and uses this phrase ego a me emphasizing that he is God. Now we talked about this a few weeks back when we were talking about the name of God in Exodus in our worship series on Tuesday nights. And that is translated as uh, egoimi in the Septuagint. That's what Jesus is quoting here. And this is a, a key phrase that he uses again and again in order to uh, identify himself uh, with God. He says, I am the bread of life in John 6, 35, 641, 648, 651, again and again, I am, ego, a me. Every time he says that, he's making a statement about his own deity. He says, I am the light of the world in John 8, 12 and John 9, 5. He says, I am the door of the sheep, John 10, 7 and 9. He says, I am the good shepherd, identifying himself with Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd in John 10:11. He said, "I am the Son of God in John 10:36." Again, a phrase indicating deity. The phrase "Son of God" doesn't mean he he was 
created by God, but in a Hebrew idiom, the term son of indicates that you're manifesting the characteristics of whatever follows. So if you're a murderer, you would be called a son of a murderer. doesn't mean your father was a murderer. It means you're manifesting the characteristics of being a murderer. If you were a, a fool, you would be called a son of a fool because you are manifesting the characteristics of a fool. So if you're called the son of man, that's emphasizing your humanity. It was applied to Ezekiel, but then it's applied in a distinct way to the Messiah in Daniel 7 as the uh, son of man. Uh, so when Jesus says, I'm the son of God, he is claiming for himself full deity in John 10:36. He said, I am, ego in me, the resurrection and the life in John eleven twenty five, and I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. And then in John 15, 6, he said, I am the vine. So each time he said this, it was understood by the Pharisees that he's making a claim to be God. That's why they tried to stone him on several occasions, as they did in John 10, which we read for our scripture reading this morning, when he claimed that he was equal with God and that he was in unity with the Father and said, I and the Father are one. So all of this indicates that he is is fully God. Furthermore, you have many places that I could go to where Jesus took verses from the Old Testament and apostles took verses from the Old Testament that applied to Yahweh and then they applied them to Jesus. One that I will use comes out of Ephesians, which we'll see when we study it, is in Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, there is the description of Jesus ascent to heaven so that at that point he then gave spiritual gifts to men. But it starts with a quote from Psalm um, 68, 18 in Ephesians 4, 8. Therefore, he says, quote, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. In Psalm 68, this is a, an, ascent, an ascent psalm that as Jews were walking up to the Temple Mount, they would sing this. And it is talking about David that uh, historically that David uh, would have conquered his enemies and then distributed the trophies. And this is used then to apply what is related to the father in his ascent. You've got about three levels going on there. You have David and his victories. Then you that's a picture of Yahweh and his victories for Israel and his distributing gifts to men. And then that which is applied to Yahweh is then applied to Jesus in Ephesians 4, 8. So this would be blasphemy unless Jesus was indeed uh, God. And in many places then, Jesus is given the attributes of God. And what I want to do as we close out today is take you to one of three key passages on the deity of Christ in John chapter 1. So turn with me to John chapter 1, and I want to look at just these initial verses that John begins his gospel with. He doesn't start with the birth of Jesus like Matthew and Luke do. He starts with the Logos, or Jesus, in eternity past. Jesus is referred to as the Logos. It's translated as the Word in English. Now, this is a term that was just filled with meaning, 
It had a rich heritage in Greek philosophy. And for many, many years, and you heard me teach this if you heard me when I taught in in, uh, the Gospel of John some 20 years ago, relating this to the answers uh, and the questions raised by Greek philosophy, talking about the word logos, its significant for, significance for reason. The word logos is the root for the word uh, logic. It's also the word root for logizomai, the word for reckoning or, or imputation. And all of this would certainly have some significance. John was in Ephesus when he was writing uh, the Gospel of John, But in the last 30 or 40 years, due to the increase uh, of messianic studies, there's been other material that wasn't unknown, it just wasn't well known, that has been surfaced. And a lot of books have been written about this in just the last uh, eight or nine years. First time I heard this was when... Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum was teaching the life of the Jewish Messiah here back around 2008. His new commentary, and he had about, in in the transcripts, it covers about five or six pages uh, from from his transcript, but in his new four-volume work on Yeshua, the life of the Jewish Messiah, he's got 75 heavily documented pages on this, which is just phenomenal, and I've picked up a couple of the scholarly books going through this, but it is talking about the fact that in the intertestamental period, that is from the time that the Old Testament closes until the time the New Testament opens, there's a tremendous amount of Jewish theology that is developed in that intertestamental period. And there is was one thing that developed that was referred to in, in an Aramaic word that is a translation of the Hebrew word devar, which means to the word or to speak a word or a command, and the uh, Hebrew word for the devar is often translated by the word uh, logos. And so the Aramaic word was this word memra. And the rabbis developed a whole theology around Memra that was taught. I mean, if you were a Jew living in Israel at the time of Jesus, you would have been very familiar with the teaching on Memra. It would have been taught in the synagogues. It would have been taught uh, all around. It had become part of Judaism by this particular time. And so when John begins writing this, in the beginning was the Logos. He is, in fact, saying in the beginning was the Memra. That's how that would have been heard and understood by a by a Jewish audience. So let's just look at what John 1, 1 through 5 says. At the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Logos is treated as an independent person who is both with God and is God. So you see two persons that are there. That he was in the beginning with God, that is the beginning of creation, so that means he is present at creation. In John 1, 3, we read, all things were made through him, so he is the intermediate agent of creation. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made 
that was made. John 1, 4, it says, in him was life. And what we learn in the gospel of John, that he is the one who gives life. And so Jesus is the Savior who gives eternal life. And in John 1, 4b, the life was the light of men. He is, it's a revelation. He is, he reveals God to men and shines forth in the darkness, but the men do not comprehend it. So when we look at that, then we see that there are six things. I misnumbered them. That last one should be corrected to six. Uh, typo there. That these are six things that relate to what the rabbis taught about Mimra. And so when John writes this, he's, he's correlating this not to Greek philosophy primarily, although I think that it could do double duty, but it relates to uh, this rabbinical teaching on the Memra. And so initially we see that they taught that, that the Memra was distinct from God and the same as God. This is what we see in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is distinct from God but identified with God. The second thing that they taught about the Memro was the Memro was the agent of creation. And this is what we see also, as I pointed out just now, in John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that had been made. They also saw that the Memro was the agent of salvation, that when God delivered Israel in the Old Testament, it is through the Memra. And so this is picked up later in John 1.12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. And then fourth, they understood the Memra to be the visible representation of God, so that in the Old Testament when there was a manifestation of God, a theophany, that that was indeed the, the Memra who was the one who was uh, uh, appearing uh, to them. So he is the visible manifestation of God. And this is what we see in John 1.18, that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten one has revealed him. He is the uh, one who reveals God. Fifth, Memra is the agent who signs God's covenant. And according to the uh, to the rabbis, the Memra, or the also referred to as the word of the Lord, was present in the signing of the covenant. Uh, especially you could look at Exodus 24, 1-11, sealed by the Shekinah glory. And they, they would see the Shekinah as the manifestation of the, of the Memra. And then uh, sixth, they saw the Memra as the uh, agent of revelation. Again, John 1, uh, 18, that, God, that the, the Logos has declared him, the Logos has revealed him. So all of this tells us the uniqueness and the distinctiveness of, of Jesus. It indicates there is a plurality in the Godhead. We've seen this in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We even see it in intertestamental uh, rabbinical thought. But the question then remains is what about the relationship 
of Jesus to the Father, which we will look at when we come back next time and then begin moving through Ephesians 1-3 to see the implications of that for understanding this opening uh, praise of Paul's to God. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time we've had to reflect upon your word and on who you are and to see the the unity of Old Testament with New Testament with regard to who you are, that there is a plurality, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are one in essence, yet three in distinct persons and distinct roles. And Father, as we seek to understand this, we know that our finite minds can only go so far, and beyond that we have to trust you that truly comprehending, intrinsically comprehending the Trinity is is beyond us, but we can understand what the Scripture teaches and that this is true and that it is foundational for us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening, anyone here that has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would understand that this is the most important decision that we make in life because the issue has to do with our eternal destiny. Life on this earth is just waiting in uh, the vestibule of eternity. Where we spend eternity will be determined by the this one decision. And it is not a matter of, of our self-reformation or our own morality or our own righteousness, which Scripture defines as filthy rags, but it is dependent upon he who was eternally righteous, who entered into human history and went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, that his righteousness might be given to us simply by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we thank you for this glorious and remarkable salvation and pray that you would make it clear to each one here and if saved that they would understand it more fully and if not saved that they would uh, awaken to an understanding of their need to trust in Jesus alone for salvation. And Father, we pray for each of us that uh, you would just challenge us with your word as it presents you in all of your glory and your majesty that we would be driven to worship you more fully and extensively in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.